Hello, the Cinephile fans. This is John. This week on The Cinephile, Steve Morris and I are going live with our monthly The Cinephiles live show, and we're doing it in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month this week, and we're talking about this film from 1988, one of my personal favorites, and I think it's a personal favorite of a lot of Latinos and Hispanics who love films, Stand and Deliver. Came out in 1988, directed by Ramon Menendez, written by Menendez and Tom Muska, and it stars Edward James Olmos as a high school mathematics teacher, Jaime Escalante. It's based on a true story, and uh, Mr. Escalante was able to elevate the scores of these uh, working class uh, Latino kids who had kind of been falling under the radar, not making the grade. He comes in with these revolutionary new teaching techniques that pushes up against the old norm and gets them to stand and deliver on their courses. And uh, it's a fantastic film uh, and they have to overcome a bunch of obstacles, a bunch of challenges to get there. So it's one that I think you all will thoroughly enjoy if you've never seen it or one, if you haven't revisited in a while, that is worth your time to revisit it so you can hang out with us and talk about it live on the Cinephiles Live this Sunday at 4 p.m. PT. And of course, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month going until Friday, October 15th. So give some love to your local Hispanics and local Latinos and their businesses. Uh, uh, just a little background on the film here. Edward James Olmos was nominated for Best Actor for this film at the 61st Academy Awards. And the film itself won the Independent Spirit Award for Best Feature in 1988. So a lot of love for this film. And in 2011, the film was deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. So I'm excited to talk about this film with Steve and with all of you in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. And for our patrons, this week, our short is on movie scores and soundtracks and how they've changed over the last few decades. One of our patrons sent in a question asking us if movie scores and soundtracks have gotten more subtle or have, are not as celebrated as they were in the past. And we talk about it. We, we, we answer the question and go in deep and talk about some of the composers that we feel are bringing some great work to these movies from the, uh, into the 21st century and beyond. If you want to be part of the Patreon, you go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to purchase any of the films we talk about, including Stand and Deliver or any of the films we discuss on our shorts or on our main show, you can go to our website, www.cine-files.net and find it there. All right, get ready. We're going to talk about it this Sunday at 4 p.m. PT. Come join us live. Stand and Deliver on the Cinephiles Live. We'll see you then. Is it wrong that I groove out to that? You know what's so crazy is, I mean, I've listened to that, I would say, probably far more times than you have. Yes, probably, And every yes. time I'm editing with it, I, I kind of, I, you know what I do? Every time I'm editing, when the drum thing hits, I go, yeah. I, like every time. <laughs> I, I, I am still happy with that piece of music. I am too. You've selected it. It's been great. And I've, I, at times I've been hesitant about it in, in the years uh, during our show, but like, it always grows back on me. It always grows back on me. Uh, every, uh, you know, eventually when I listen to it, I love it. I dig it. And um, I hope you all enjoyed that intro. I edited it for our last show and I, I kind of like it. Still. I love so, it. I think so you did we'll a great job. It. Thank you very much. All right. Welcome everybody uh, to the cinephiles live. I am one of your co-hosts. I'm the outlaw John Roca uh, joined by my partner in crime on the cinephiles. We're film, shall we say <laughs> Steve Morris. How are you, Steve? 
I am good. And I'm so glad you suggested this movie. It's one that I've always loved mm -hmm. and I hadn't watched it in 20 years. So yeah. it's really, really great to revisit it. Yeah. And thank you all for, uh, for joining us. And uh, the movie that Steve is referencing uh, that we're going to be talking about today is Stand and Deliver. That's one of the films we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a little bit more of a general conversation about Hispanic cinema, Latino cinema as well. But this is a film that we were looking at to kind of open the door to talking about um, the progression of film in the in the world of uh, in our world and how it has kind of come around and how we've gotten um the uh, hispanic and latin cultures profiled uh decade by decade in larger mm. numbers each decade um as we've moved on in, in our world and so we're going to talk about that overall but stand and deliver was kind of the gateway i mean Lababa was a little bit of a gateway but it was really stand and deliver for me. We're going to get into it in Steve's experience as well. And you all's experiences. Remember the stream labs are open today. Super chats are open today. Whatever you uh, can send to support the show, any questions, comments, any thoughts you might have on Hispanic heritage month, feel free to send them in as we go through it. We're doing this in honor of Hispanic heritage month, which runs until October 15th. So uh, we thought we'd do a live one to talk about that with you all. So we're thankful that all of you are joining us here to have this conversation. Steve, I'm going to ask the question that you always ask us. What is your first or when when, how, when was the first time you saw Stand and Deliver? And do you remember that experience? I saw it in the movie theater. I was already a fan of Edward James almost at the mm. time. And and by the way, just spoiler alert, his performance in this movie is astounding. Yeah. I, I think he is one of the great underutilized actors of all time. Mm -hmm. I, I He's such a great actor. Yes. Um, so I was a big fan of his already. And uh, so and I saw it in the movie that I can remember watching the commercial. Like this is, you know what I mean? Like back when we watched TV, you know, TV and movie commercials came up and yeah. I was super excited. I don't think I saw it opening weekend. I do think that I saw it in Berkeley and uh, it just was really, really rocked by it the first time yeah. I saw it. How about you? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this came out in 89. Uh, so I certainly probably went to a movie theater to see it. I don't remember if I saw it with my dad or mm. with uh, with a friend. But I know that every subsequent viewing that happened in my house after that was with my dad. Um, and this is a film because he is Bolivian, the lead character, yeah. Jaime Escalante. For us, it had even extra motive. You see, La Baba we can admire from afar, but that's a Chicano experience, a Mexican-American experience. For us, having uh, someone who was the lead who was Bolivian, that is so rare for us as the South American country's landlocked country, you know, it's usually Argentina or Brazil or Portugal or Colombia. You know, those are the ones that get highlighted the most, even Ecuador because of the equator. You know, they get uh, talked about more. And Bolivia was always kind of denigrated as this, the place where you get cocaine. You know, Scarface made that famous with Cochabamba, Bolivia, that city or that the town that they highlight there that Sosa is at. But here was a gentleman who was teaching kids education he was teaching kid education to kids who were struggling who were lower class or lower class in terms of financial um uh, uh status at lower middle class and he was teaching them and that's something that appealed to me because we grew up poor and so i remember going i was seeing this in the movie theater and just being blown away and just like you steve i was also a fan of ever james almost from blade runner to miami vice and then uh, American Me, which I think is a year or two before this one, or maybe a year after this one. But those were the films that got me to fall in love with Everett James almost. And then you have, right. then you have Jaime Escalante coming in. And it was such a great portrayal 
because this isn't your typical feel good Hollywood story. This he's a hard man in terms of yeah. how he wants to teach these kids because the world is hard and he doesn't want to sugarcoat it, but he wants to inspire them as a way of giving back to his own community, uh, his own Latin or Hispanic community. And that's really powerful to see when you're a, a young teen or a teenager like I was. Uh, it's funny. I, so, I, you know, I took notes, not the kind of notes I take normally mm. when we're going to do a, sure, sure, a regular sure. show, but, but, but I think I wrote down, man, he is an asshole <laughs> at least three times in my notes. And, and, and he, his yeah. character is one that it's like, you're like, Oh my God, I love this guy. And Oh, yeah. Oh wow. He's a difficult, he's a difficult person. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I want to mention the, the big, I obviously love Edward James almost in Blade Runner and saw him yeah. in other places. The big one for me is I saw right, I think when I was graduating high school, is I saw Zoot Suit. Oh, and yeah. Zoot Suit, oh, my God. His performance in that is is otherworldly. Yeah. And so I had this, and I think this is the this performance is the closest one to that, in that he inhabits this character that is mm-hmm. just physically, the way he speaks, the way he moves, like everything about him is just yeah. this totally unique person. Yeah. yeah, and think about what Edward, where Edward James almost is in his life at this point as an actor. You know, this is it's not like people were giving out uh, roles to Latino actors uh, off of trees. He had really established himself as this kind of uh, strong lead actor in the films of his community, like you mentioned, Zoot Suit and what have you. But then playing the kind of captain to Crockett and Tubbs. Dude, walking it. First of all, what a groundbreaking show in the, in the early 1980s to have a show like that that is a... Uh, interracial buddy cop you know thing Mm. where they're going and exploring and it's not lethal weapon where it's for jokes and with some hardcore stuff in it this was every almost every episode it dealt with some pretty serious stuff in that world and to hold your own against an up-and-coming don johnson who was so much a tv idol and uh um uh god what uh, michael uh, i forget his name right now sorry about that but uh, tubbs there he, him bring a uh, Philip Michael Thomas, him bringing his power as a young black actor. Then you have a Latino captain and almost yeah. playing that subtle in between the lines, gravelly voiced character. That's who I thought at a young age is who Edward James almost was. Cause I hadn't seen Zoot Suit. So then to move him into this character and mm. he's playing a much older, the hair is like, he's balding he's you know he's wearing the dad sweaters he's you know kind of walking walking to his school from his house you know this is a very simple man uh and it was uh so incredible to see as an actor to have him switch into that role um i had to point out this is just i was just looking at the chat and who's here i have to point out that probably among our most prolific and consistent commenters, Maria Torres <laughs> is, is on on here. Maria, I've read your book long comments several times. You and I have had great discussions. I love Hi, the way you're analyzing the films along with us, and I'm so happy to see that you're uh, here for the live stream. Yes, um, yes. Um, I I agree with everything you said, and and I also um, I think that. Uh, Edward James almost what he does in this movie. I, and I think you got to start with the hair, mm-hmm. like the, the willingness to be difficult and odd and peculiar and all of those yeah. things. I mean, he really, and it's funny. I was looking at, he was nominated for the Oscar. It's a weird Oscar year because yeah. it's, because I, I think it's certainly an Oscar performance. This year is Tom Hanks and big 
Gene Hackman in Mississippi Burning, Oof. Max von Sydow in Pele, Pele the Conqueror, right. and it's the year Dustin Hoffman won for Brain Man, Rain Man. Yeah, and I it's so funny the Rain Man has gone down and down in my estimation over mm-hmm. the years. Mm-hmm. Like at this point, that's one of the least interesting performances to me. Right, but uh, but it's a you know it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a good year of performances. Absolutely. And someday I'm going to get around to Pelly the Conqueror, maybe on my deathbed. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to watch that one, but I've maybe. never seen it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. This is what he looks like. This is a shot from the movie there. Look at it. He's got the little bit of the gut there. He's got the, you know, thinning hair. There's no makeup covering up, you know, the, the acne scars there on his face. All of that just showing you a fully authentic member of the Latin community. Not that someone without acne isn't, but I'm saying this is such a real uh, connectable uh, character or person that I've seen in my community that I saw uh, at my, at the functions with my family that I saw at other people, other Latino families functions. You saw an uncle like this, you knew an uncle like this, you know, little hard edge doesn't speak too much. Uh, kind of sits on his own, but is very funny and and can be witty with his occasional one-liners. And then look at the cast around him. All these young Latino characters and actors of different shades of Latino. Again, you know, we're having these discussions about dark-skinned Latinos versus light-skinned Latinos versus medium uh, light-skinned Latinos and what have you. So to see a movie that was so predominantly latino in terms of the casting aside from lou diamond films who in essence is an honorary latino because of la bamba and what have you but it was great to see you know it was great for a a young guy like me to see that and go like this is possible this is what we can make this is what we can create and uh it almost is prescient steve because we're a few years away from like dangerous minds and freedom Mm. writers and all these films where the white savior goes into the community Mm. and teaches the people of color how to be educated this was a person of color in his community teaching other people of color how to be educated and that's powerful well i think one of the things that's so and by the way it was such a obviously i'm not latino but it was a a powerful movie (laughs) for a white kid you know white jewish kid from the suburbs to see because we, we didn't we didn't see this world. And mm-hmm. like the world of my high school, frankly, was a world where it was expected that you went to college, you yeah, know? Right. And so, and this Not is where I, yeah. And, and yeah. I think one of the things that's so profound watching uh, this film is how low the expectations were yes. at the school, the way it's portrayed for these right. kids, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's, and, and that had been happening. Remember, Lean On Me, I think, is around this time as well. The yeah, the the Joe, I can't remember his last name, but his story that Morgan Freeman did, um, once again, a person of color who had been leads in other things or uh, the sec co-lead or whatever, now getting a chance to lead a film like this, teaching young kids, showing them that there's a better way out of this community. You know, I was watching, uh, what was I watching the other day? Oh, I was watching um, Many Saints of Newark, right? And there's a line, because um, it's set in the 60s or whatever, the, the black woman in New Jersey is telling the other black man, well, the only way out of this community is playing the numbers, doing the numbers. That's the only way out right. of this community or sports. And that's the kind of approach that a lot of people of color had for numerous decades in our country who are coming out of those poor communities. That's why being a drug dealer was like lauded being a person who got out of there because of sports was something you pursued. Uh, and it was, it wasn't education, right? Chris Rock had that joke, like, Oh, you got a master's degree. What are you, my master now? When a person comes back mm. into his community with a master's degree, that kind of right. reaction.
reaction. And that's how it was. Education wasn't seen as something to be aspired to, to be had. It was, it was something that uh, was almost to be made fun of and vilified for sections of the Latin and Hispanic community, unfortunately. Right. And here comes a film that shows you another way out or another path to walk um, for sure. You know? um, by the way, I don't know. I, I, I miss your face. I don't know if they, if they could see you on YouTube, but I can't. So, oh, uh, did something happen? No, oh, I'm just still looking that. at that Edward James Almost picture. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, We're having such a fun oh, conversation. I apologize. No, I apologize. Like, I was ahead. like, sorry Where, about that. where's John? <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, everyone, most of the people yes. listening are used to your disembodied voice, but I like looking at you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, it's I'm funny so in a weird way, <laughs> in a weird way. And I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to make any kind of comparisons at all, but like, the my connections to the Latino community come through my dad because that's where his office as an optometrist was. And, you know, he, mm. when he got out of optometric school had was offered a job at a wealthy practice in Beverly Hills. And my dad turned it down and wanted to work in the mission district in San Francisco because that's the community he wanted to work in. And this was very much his, I mean, his office was a real kind of pillar of the community in a lot of ways. And, yeah. and he helped a, a lot of people and it was, because he saw he's you know again i'm not trying to make any kind of comparisons to this heroic teacher this you know bolivian man or anything anything mm -hmm. like that that mm -hmm. but but you know the work my dad did in that community was really important and that helped me to feel connected to that community mm -hmm. too even though i lived in a very different way growing up yeah and you could argue like jack kennedy the kennedys like for whatever your feelings are about joe kennedy and some of the unsavory shit sure. he did you know, Jack and Robert Kennedy were two people that really worked hard to bring about civil rights in this country during his administration and then influencing LBJ to continue that process into the Civil Rights Act. So, you know, so with the way our country is built, we do need white people to be in these communities to help uh, along with our own people in these communities uh, because we're not the predominant uh, race in this country. And so because of that, we have to have access to certain pillars, certain levels of power, levers of power so that we can wield them when we can or use them when we can to get up there and to be able to bring the rest of our people up as well. That's important. It's not just about you getting there. It's about you opening the door and then of keeping course. it open so that other people can get through. And that doesn't always happen in communities of color. Uh, and I think this film is a way of showing you, hey, here are all these different people from different walks of life. They can all be educated to achieve uh, the things they can they 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 want to achieve and open the door to more possibilities in their lives, no matter where they're from. And it's because you open the door and you kept it open so that as many right. people could come in. Yeah. Well, and and the biggest thing is is uh, and I can't say it in a more plain way mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. that if you look at the school at the beginning of this movie, and if you go and look at schools in these communities today, and then you look at the school at in Beverly Hills or somewhere else. And you go like, well, which of these classes going to have higher test scores? Which of these students are going to put more people to college? Yeah. And, and it's like, and what the conclusion, unfortunately for a lot of people is uh, the racist conclusion of mm. they look at the test results. So they look at how many people went to college and they go, Oh, well, these white kids are better than these other kids. Right. Instead right, of right, going, right. look at the environments, you know, that what we're doing is, is, of you know, you have, Overcrowded classes with old materials and a lot of stress on the not well-paid teachers. And right. it's hard. And and you look at, and, and particularly look, okay, 
these kids were 100% capable of excelling. Yeah. But then you look at the kind of teacher that was necessary, mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot. You know, one of the great teachers yeah. of all time yeah. had to come in to overcome the mm -hmm. things that were going on in the community and, and the low expectations that they had for them, you know? Yeah. And we should clarify that the, the movie is based on a true story because it's based on a true story. The chronological events within the movie don't happen exactly in the timing right. that you see in the movie, but the general gist of it is overall correct about it. And, the, and we'll get to the questioning of their scores by the Andy Garcia, because I think that's deceptively the one aspect of the movie that elevates it out of the trope of, you know, teacher teaching kids and showing them the dead poet society type approach. Right. I think this is the one thing that I, and we'll get to uh, in just a second to, to, to talk about it, because I think that's uh, overall important as well. And you're right, Steve. I mean, this idea that this is the level of teacher that has to be that we just saw. I mean, I'm re reading over the weekend about that UCLA teacher who is suing UCLA because they asked him to be to take into account where a lot of these black uh, students were coming from and the access to the materials that they had. And they asked him to be a little more lenient in the judging of those papers, judging exams. I don't know how you feel about this, but for me, I feel like that's a correct approach. Factor in, as you said, the where they came from, what access they had to the materials. Did they have the same advantages as other white kids or other kids in the school uh, from coming from those communities? You have to factor that in, especially at college. Maybe in high school, you don't have to do it. But I think in college, because you're supposed to be elevated, you're supposed to be more educated, therefore you're teaching at college. Uh, it, you were you were required to have more responsibility with greater power or greater status or greater a, a bigger job comes more responsibility. And I think that's the kind of thing that people seem to forget. They just want to judge it all across the line rather than factoring all these other things, because I guess it takes too much brain power to figure out that there are a number of factors that can contribute to a situation like this you know how 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 excited would you be to go get to go get educated if you walk into a room and you know the, the chalkboard is half broken uh and right. not there you've got uh students who you've got books that you're using that are like outdated well, by 20 years yeah. you know yeah. um i think in answer to your question i'm probably i'm not going to answer it very much about mm -hmm. uh standards within college i think it's super super complicated mm -hmm. i think 100 percent you should be taking into account who people are and where they're coming from. I mean, yeah. you know, I, as I've said many times, I taught a school that was largely international. So I had people with really varying levels of English. Yeah. So it's not like I could expect someone with really poor English to write colloquial English dialogue in a screenwriting class. Right. Like I could someone who was born in the U S that doesn't, you know, so you, of course you have to take into account certain things. Yeah. The goal I think in the long run should be that at, by the end of the college experience, mm -hmm. if you say someone has a master's in, you know, nuclear physics, that they're all going to know basically the same stuff. You can't, right. you know, you can't let the person graduate, who knows 30% less than the other person and say right. they get the same degree. I don't think you can do that, but I do think that you can, I, I think we really have to take into consideration. It's something you and I have talked a lot. Mm. I've thought so much about how my position um, allowed me to do things that other people didn't get to do. Yep. You know, not that, not that I, and, and this is the thing, it's like the example, I think I've used it before, but like I got into Berkeley almost entirely based on my SAT scores. Like I was mm. a really good test taker. Yeah. But I also, my parents paid for me to take like one of those SAT prep 
things. Mm -hmm. And let's say that let's say that upped my score by a hundred points or two hundred points or whatever. Yeah, that could have made the difference of me getting into Berkeley or not. First of all, not even every parent knows about those courses. And right. second of all, the vast majority of parents didn't have the money or the time. You know, the kid had to work on Saturday mornings. They didn't have yes. to, couldn't go in and take this course. So there could be a kid that was just as talented, just as smart, just as dedicated as me or more so mm -hmm. who, because they didn't have that privilege, didn't get into Berkeley. And I right. did, you know, right. and it's like, and, and, and this is the thing. It's like, did I work hard? Totally. Am mm -hmm. I a smart person? Yeah. But that, but I'm also a person that had to step up. And yes. so as a teacher, you, you need to be looking for that step up in, mm -hmm. and, and your job. And this is, I'll tell you one more thing just about teaching is epiphany. Yeah. I had maybe my second semester is when I, my first semester, my attitude was very much, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give them the information and what they do with it is up to them. Yeah. And if they work hard and Excel, great. And if they don't, well, that's their problem. Hmm. And, and, because I was like, well, that's everyone, you know, it's even playground. <laughs> Everyone's going to be the same. Yeah. The intention. And, I understand the intention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I went, oh, every student that fails is my fault. That was the new wow. conclusion is that I went, wow. I didn't serve that student what they needed. Hmm. And sometimes that student needed, you know, a Jaime Escalante kick in the ass. <laughs> and sometimes that student needed just more time with me. And sometimes yeah. that student needed another explanation. But whatever is that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for me to just go, here's some great teaching. It was yeah. that I had to understand who each of these people were and help try to figure out how to get them to excel, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, as, and that's absolutely the and that's a great approach, you know, and hopefully a majority of teachers do take that approach. And I think a majority of them do, because uh, Matt Damon said it best in that uh, when he was, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? He was uh, um, ambushed oh. by a reporter when he was uh, pro he was uh, protecting teachers of the teachers union. And they asked me, and, and she asked, like, why, you know, aren't they trying to take advantage of situations? Like, well, I hope they're trying to get some money because, like, who wants to do this? job? This is such a difficult job to be a teacher for such low wages, so many hours, you know, parents bitching you out, students bitching you out now. Now, you know, for the last few uh, general, or last couple of generations, students have been able to complain to teachers to get their grades changed. That's never something that I, I have experienced in, in Dude, growing up. I, I had I, it happen so many times. Yeah, see? So <laughs> that this is an agency we should have never given students or made it really, really rare when you could do that because well, that, 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 that kind of adds more it, pressure to the teacher. I agree, but except that you yeah. st we started this by you talking about giving some slack or, or some understanding to someone and right. where they came from. If and the so some isn't of the doing that, then yeah, that's. Fair. And so yeah. some of the grade changes, those were issues that came up. Yeah, you know, good point. And it's good like, point, well, Steve. how much do you? How that's why I say it's a really complicated issue because because yeah. the, uh, the other thing I saw, I mean, I had one student who was very very troubled and mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of things that were somewhat unsavory. Yeah. And I, this was a kid that I had for like four semesters and I worked really, really hard to try to help. In my opinion, mm -hmm. they contested, this guy contested my grades at least twice, if not yeah. three times. And this is like, I gave him a B or a B plus, like this was not a bad grade. Mm -hmm. And at one point he accused not me, but the rest of the class of racism. And that that is in fact why he wow. wasn't doing well. And, and to be very honest, yeah. The kid repeatedly did not show up for other people's shoots and sometimes had the equipment they needed in his car wow. when and stopped the shit. And I was like, no, they yeah. didn't like you because they couldn't trust you. You know, right. that was what, you, you know, right. and, but 
anyone who makes an accusation of racism in a in a university setting that's a really really serious thing and of course yeah. it should be investigated yeah properly but that's why again i go these things are really complicated yeah <laughs> Well, I'm, and, and I want to talk about the Garcia thing, and then we'll get into some trivia about the movie that I think is really interesting. And, and for those you don't know, this is, I guess, you know, Steve, we should have given the synopsis. I apologize. This is a movie that came out in 1989 based on a true story of Jaime Escalante, this mathematics professor in uh, Los in the Los Angeles uh, Unified School District, who uh, went to this, uh, who taught at this school at the Gar at Garfield High School there, uh, and was able to uh, use his very unusual and unorthodox techniques as a teacher to raise the grades, uh, raise the uh, testing scores of the uh, uh, crew of uh, Latin kids that he was assigned to teach uh, and had to overcome quite a lot of obstacles, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom, and even from the teaching uh, administrators, uh, and the sorry, the test administrators, in order to, uh, in the end, come out on top. And... Um, well, one of those and, yeah go ahead, go ahead sorry i just want to add yeah. it, 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 he definitely is trying to raise their grades and raise their test scores but i just want to point out this wasn't just like the sats like i was talking about yeah this right. is ap calculus yes like i didn't do ap calculus <laughs> like ap <laughs> calculus right. is no fucking joke it is serious serious mathematics yeah yeah you know? very difficult uh and this is why what we see later on in the movie that i think is really really important as i referenced earlier and steve i'd love to hear your thoughts on this Andy Garcia, the character of Andy Garcia. Now, Lou Diamond Phillips, not Latino, but Edward James, almost certain Latino Hispanic. The these kids were Latino Hispanic. The story is a true story, Latino Hispanic. Then you have a guy who is in essence representing the executive Hispanic, the Hispanic or Latino who kind of got out of this situation and now questions his community questions the people coming out of the community because of what he experienced right and so you see him questioning the scores and of course the other administrator was also black so a black and latino two black and latino men questioning these scores um and it ends up he ends up being the one who instigates them having to retaste retake these tests and in the end they and, and they pass and they do well in, in, in the results of the test as well. But I think it was so important to have that because as so many uh, black uh, friends of mine in this sphere have told me numerous times, um, we are not a monolith. Black people are not a monolith. Latinos are not a monolith. Certainly every election shows us that there's quite a lot of Latino liberals, Latino uh, conservatives, and Latino uh, uh, in the middle there, and Latinos in the middle there. And so uh, this is so important to show the aspect of a teacher, lower, lower income kids, and then someone who's gotten out and become what you, in essence, would like to uh, become yourself, which is successful, doing a higher paying job, executive job, what have you, having him question the kids that he uh, maybe grew up with in the past. And I think that's so important because we do sometimes face questions within our community of each other. And that could be so detrimental. That could be so um, much of a kick in the face more than racism sometimes having your own people not believe in you your own people question you is a very debilitating thing and according to edward james almost he wrote what he said in that scene to andy garcia's character the back and forth the emotional back and forth he he copied that from what jaime had told him he said in the actual meeting himself mm. it was word for word what he said in the wow. actual meeting himself so really powerful so stuff there I think there's a lot to break down. And the first mm -hmm. thing I have a question because I think it's key. There's a moment where Andy Garcia says yeah. that 
the tests were flagged before they see the names on the tests. Hmm. So is that true? I don't believe so. No, just like they were randomly picking people out of lines to uh to oh yeah that's not the, true yeah, that's what i'm saying so i i think that's what the administrator told or the people above andy said to him to kind of uh, uh maybe calm his worries or fears or concerns down but don't tell me that that was something that was oh yeah absolutely on the level bullshit so, i don't believe it so because i think several things the first thing i think is i think in terms of a filmmaking choice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. having a, a latino and an african-american be those two guys is a great choice. A great, because, you're right. You're absolutely right. Because if it had been a couple of white guys, then then the racism card is really really clear. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that he does, and particularly the character of Jaime, and why I wrote, man, he's such an asshole so many times, is they don't make him just a hero. They right. make him a complicated. This is a difficult dude. Yes. And when he's yelling at Andy Garcia, it's not a comfortable. No. I don't just go like. Jaime is the hero and this is the bad guy. I go, wait, but how do I feel? Yeah. And if you'd made it white, if you made it two white guys, it would have been far less complicated. It'd been like, yeah, these are a couple of racists. That's yeah. it. And the, and the other thing, it goes back to what you said. Was it a Chris Rock? Yes. Yeah, is that, ago, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know I'm the white guy here, but <laughs> racism is not limited to people outside of that community. Yes. Like, people have, I will, let me take the word racism back. Everybody mm -hmm. has prejudices and biases. Sure. Yes, and yes, yes. And people judge people by their appearance and by their background, and they look at someone, how they're dressed. Like, you yeah. look at Lou Diamond Phillips' character, yes. and most of the people, not just white people, but most of the people in that community would have an opinion about mm -hmm. who that guy is, and that yeah. opinion would be wrong, you know? Yep. Like, and that's one of the things, that, and so Andy Garcia, you know, his, he, maybe he elevates his pathway to get where he got, and looks at these kids and is because there's the other thing, you know, of people who are want to make sure that the people in their community are representing them, that community in the way that they want it represented. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. You know, and so if he goes, maybe he's thinking, oh, man, if these kids cheat, if these are cheaters, this makes me look bad. Right. You know, well, it, 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 it devalues my journey because I did this honestly. Yeah, you know, so there's the, so the fact that casting choice and the way they handle it makes is makes the movie much stronger in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, well, and yeah, because he is the one who gets upset about it first, right? He is the one that is pushing and saying and going back and forth with Andy and with uh, Riff. By the way, that's a uh, Riff is a voiceover actor and occasional uh, uh, actor on screen as well. Really yeah, great he's guy. Still familiar, like it's still one of those people. Like I know I've seen you in lots of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. When I did Wind Talkers, he was a guy doing the Loop Group with me for two weeks. Oh. Very, very nice guy. But so great to see you know see him in this part of the movie here. But the back and forth here is really important and powerful because there is this anger here amongst us uh, from Escalante of like you're taking something away from these kids. Like he has he has in essence um, tough loved these kids and loved these kids into this moment and yeah. now to have the system yeah. led by a latino accuse them of cheating there was a certain level of frustration but he gets out his frustration towards them he does not pass that on to the kids what i think is really important he says to the kids whatever they said you're gonna have to take it again and you're gonna do even better 
So there's that idea that, yes, even if you do well, which a lot of people of color know, and this is something that I think a lot of white people don't understand, maybe in some microcosm way they understand, but societally, overall in society don't understand, is that we're always, always aware that we have to work harder than white people we're, we're, that's ingrained in us or browbeat in us from the beginning that the, the system is already stacked against you and then we see evidence of it through through most of our lives of how the system can be stacked against you and so to have people of color come against you as well as part of the system that's the one that's the really the hardest thing to overcome and so i think that's those are the things that you kind of go and understand and so when these kids have to take the test again yeah it sucks yeah it's frustration and that's a great sequence how many of them uh, you know react in the ways that they react how many of them react like not wanting to come back and do it afraid they won't be able to succeed again it's really powerful to see that, but to see the way they band together and inspire each other, which is what he was trying to teach them, not only that they can do it, but that they can do it together, I think is really important to see and was a brilliant choice as well, narratively in the movie. I think one of the key things in this film is the idea of belief. Yes. What do you believe is possible for you? If yeah. you don't believe, if you look at your future and it doesn't include college or a professional career and and you look at all of the people around you and what mm -hmm. their lives are like well then the idea that you're going to aspire to these things this gets really really hard it's not that there aren't exceptional people who right. who move beyond that of course there are and so what uh jaime does is he inspires belief and he goes yes you can believe you are capable of this and they believe him and then when the society comes and shuts it down by saying oh you must have cheated that's like the most mm -hmm crushing betrayal yeah. because it basically says no you can't you can't right. even if you try not yeah. only even if you try even <laughs> if you try and work harder than you've ever worked in your life and you succeed yeah you can't yeah that is well and this is the thing is that the you know and again i'll just talk about myself yeah both my parents went to college my dad is a doctor of optometry three out of four of my grandparents went to college there was no question that I was going to college. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to believe something outside of my <laughs> norm in order to think I was going to go to college. Right. So that, you know, and this is why you say it's like someone growing up in Garfield High did have to work harder yeah. than me, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and again, and this is, I know white people struggle with this a lot, is that what, what white people hear when you talk about privilege or some white people yeah, yeah. Um, is they go, you're telling me I didn't earn what I have, or you're telling me right. that I cheated, or you're telling me, and it's like, that's not the point. Nope. Every, anyone who's, there are all sorts of people who work super hard. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of people who are talented. There are all sorts of people who are dedicated. That has nothing to do with it. The point is what is what someone else to get to the same spot would have to do more. Yeah. You know? That's the point. It's not about, and, and I think this is the big thing. Remember, it's not about you. <laughs> you no. know, you know, it's not, they're not a taking something away from you by saying right. you have privilege. They're saying this other person needs, needs help. They need to come yeah. up. They need that step so they can start where you started. Yeah. You All know? we're asking you to do is to just take a moment and look at this, right? And listen, women have been doing this for decades in the in this country as well. Male privilege, right? Finally, after the Me Too movement, we've seen the change. More men with their eyes open. Even someone who thinks he's as liberal as I, even my eyes were open to some of this stuff and, and seeing it and going like, wow, I hadn't even looked at it that way or hadn't even considered that. And that's really important. And I think, yeah. and, and, and it's the same thing. You're not saying it's not an attack on you. It's more of like, 
Can you be aware of this going forward in your life? Right. Can you be aware of this so that we can make changes where this doesn't have to happen so that future generations that are coming behind us won't have to deal with this nonsense so that we can actually have what we claim to have in this country and in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all these things that we claim to be, which is about equality and meritocracy for all. We have to embody that. And highlighting my privilege is not saying you somehow uh, don't deserve what you've gotten. It's more a matter of take a look at how the system is yeah. favored to help you get where you're going. Uh, and I've seen, you know, I went back and forth with a person on Twitter yesterday, yesterday, two days ago, about, oh, not Twitter, but on YouTube about it. Because he's like, I served 17 years in prison. I, I struggle to pay my bills. I don't have any white privilege. And I said, I totally understand where you're coming from. But do you get afraid when you get in your car at like 2 a.m. to go to the CVS or to go to the 7-Eleven? Or do you, would you be able to wear a hood and go into a, 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 a convenience store at 12 o'clock at night? And, or could you walk home from that convenience store at 12 o'clock at night and not have police, not be afraid of police pulling you over? People of color don't have that in, in some communities. And that's the, that's the white privilege at its most based form is that already people uh, in certain positions of power think that you're guilty of something and they're just waiting to find the right crime to, to hang on you. And white people don't have to be afraid of that. And you talk about college, Steve. It was a big deal yeah, for I'm me sure. to go. My, my yeah. dad didn't go. My mom didn't go. It was massive yeah. for me to go to be the first generation. And I flunked out my first time. I was terrible in college. All the pressure got to me. But when I got back to college eight years later, I killed it. And so yeah. it was just like, it wasn't the right time. My brother went through, my sister went through, then I went through. And it was, it was just important for us in our culture. And, you know, and white privilege is also white people will say, eh, I don't want to go. It's no big deal. I'll go get a job someplace else. And you can't. But a lot of people of color who don't have college can't get the level of jobs that some white people or most white people can get without having gone to college. It's frustrating. There, there, there are a couple of things I want to comment on because I, mm -hmm. I agree with everything you want to, you said. And I want to kind of drill back down on a few of the things. Sure. Um, one of them is you were talking about things, lessons that you've learned in the last few years and how you yeah. changed your perspective. That should be for all of us an ongoing mm. process. It yes. never ends. I okay. never stop having moments because I read a lot of books and I try to listen really well to different perspectives where I just go probably every couple of weeks where I go, holy shit, I never mm. thought of that that way. Mm -hmm. If you're not doing that on a regular basis, you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the, that's the first thing I'd say. Um, I, I also want to separate it out from just, we say white privilege is that there's all sorts of privileges out there. Oh yeah. Male privilege. There's privileges of wealth. There's yep. if you're, if you're born in a, in a, in a country, some countries are experiencing devastating effects of climate change right now. Mm -hmm. Part of why we have so many immigration problems here is because there's disastrous climate things going on in other places in the world. And yeah. it's like, well, you have the privilege of not living where that's happening. Yes. You know, you have the privilege of maybe having clean water. Like for instance, if you grew up in Flint, Michigan right now, even to this day, you're not getting clean water, you know, or you're worried that you're, it's insane. And so just like being able to trust the water that comes out of your sink is a privilege <laughs> or yeah. because some other people can't trust that. And I'll yeah. give, you know, we, I gave a very positive example of my privilege. I'll give a really negative one. Um, really is that, and it just goes to that conversation of with someone of, Oh, I've struggled. And it's like, yeah, right. you have. So, mm -hmm. so my dad died of ALS, which is mm -hmm. just a terrible, horrible, awful disease. Yeah. And if someone came to me and said, oh, that wasn't so bad because you're white, I would say, fuck you. 
you have Jesus. no idea well yeah uh, i mean if someone came and said the watching my dad slowly become paralyzed until he until he died because he yeah. didn't have the strength to breathe anymore like if someone came to me and said that wasn't that i that i didn't suffer yeah. through that thing i would be really pissed off of course but my family was in a financial position where we could ease some of the pain of that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that other people wouldn't have been able to do it's right. not that my dad's death wasn't just a horribly un incredibly painful and difficult couple yeah. of years of my life it was it was yeah. fucking horrible but we also didn't experience it in the way because you know my mom works she's on the board of the als golden west als and she does a lot of work you know supporting this cause and one of the right. big things they do is try to get help and caregivers to people that don't have access to them because this disease right. is one where people need my dad needed 24-hour care Ugh. You know, my, yeah. so there was someone by when, when he was really sick, my mom couldn't, my mom couldn't lift him. You yeah. know, he fell on the floor and couldn't get up. My mom had to call the fire department to get him, yeah. you know, back into a bed. Like, yeah. and so you need, and, and someone who doesn't, I mean, that's a lot of money to have someone yeah. for 24 hour care. And of so course. it's like, that's why I say it's like the, the pain is real. It doesn't deny the pain, but that right. doesn't mean there wasn't privilege there as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, agreed with you. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, kind of connecting this tissue, uh, this, uh, sorry, this issue here as well, um, almost uh, apparently was friends with Jaime Escalante all the way up until his death in 2010. He even led a campaign to help pay for Escalante's medical bills. So even yeah. Jaime Escalante uh, couldn't enjoy the, the possible financial situation where his medical bills wouldn't be something that they he had enough money to handle or his family had enough money no matter the fact that they profiled him in this movie it still wasn't a situation for him where he could get into a position financially and eventually he did uh, with cast members and other people get involved in the situation were able to uh, get the money for him so it's just like it's that kind of you're right you're 100 percent right you know my brother when my dad died of cancer my brother was working the phone my dad was a banquet server at a fucking hotel. I mean, this is, my dad was incredibly intelligent, but some of the situations here in this country, this is right. what he ended up doing to be able to put food on the table. This is what he could find without being unable to get to college uh, when he was there in, in Bolivia. This is in Argentina. This is what he was able to do. And he put food on our table for a majority of the last 17 years of his life there doing that. And still there were so many issues and hoops that my brother was on the phone. My brother was on the phone for multiple hours to make sure he was able to get the right care for the last two years of his life with that cancer. So much so that he was able to convince them to put my father into Johns Hopkins University wow. Medical Center. That was incredible. And he, he was on the phone with Kaiser just nonstop to make it happen. Yeah. And those are the things that we, we didn't have uh, the, the privilege of wealth to be able to not worry about it and, and, and be able to get them the best care just, just automatically. You know, it, had, it was an incredible amount of Herculean effort by my brother and my mother as well to make this happen, to give him at least some level of a quality of life before he passed. So I hear you, Steve. It's, it's interesting to compare the situations and what we all go through in this world. You know? Well, and it's also, I mean, what you describe is why our medical system is so fucked up. <laughs> because wealth 100%. or no wealth, nav navigating the medical system is is a yeah. full-time job and i'm sure there are people out here who have had a, an ill relative and know what it's like to yep. like you got to be advocating regularly with your doctor you need to be asking questions repeatedly you got to fight often mm -hmm. to yeah. to get the care that you need and that's yeah. fucked up and it's and it's way disproportionate on people of color and people of lower income you know mm -hmm. the fact that you know people are making choices of like well I can't take this job or do this thing that I want, even though I can make money at it because I lose my health care. Yeah. You know, that's just, you know, uh, yeah. awful.
Yeah, agreed. Um, one thing to look at that in 2016, the United States Postal Service issued a first class forever Jaime Escalante stamp to honor the East Los Angeles teacher whose inspirational methods led supposedly unteachable high school students to master calculus. Uh, that's a part that came out of this movie as well. This was directed by uh, Ramon Menendez. This is his first film as a writer and director. And uh, um, Tom Muska, who was also uh, from UCLA and a fellow graduate in the same class with him, they secured the movie rights for a dollar, Steve, a wow. dollar. And they couldn't sell it to any of the studios, including independent studios. They wouldn't take a chance on this uh, in, in at the time there. And they ended up getting endowments and grants, uh, including from PBS, in order to fund the making of this movie. How sad is that? And, that, and that's the truth. But that's another level of racism. We can't Absolutely. tell this story about a Latino helping. A, no one's going to want to watch it. Almost is not bankable in 1989, maybe in the studio's minds as a lead. No one wants to watch this thing. And look, it led to it winning the best feature at the Independent Spirit Awards. It led to Edward James almost being nominated for Best Actor uh, at the Oscars. So it's just it's that kind of thing. You, f- you see racism in Hollywood for numerous decades when it came to stories like this. Uh, and so these are the kind of hoops that these films have to jump through in order to make them happen and put them on screen, you know? I, I, I want to say something in a, in a weird way is mm. that there's the racism that prevented the film or, or, or that created obstacles to the film getting made. Yeah. But the thing that really bugs me and shocks me is what happens after. Yeah. This movie's a big hit. Ramon Menendez, you know, like your first yeah. movie, you got an Oscar nominated performance and you look at his career after. And I don't, I don't know what his personal life was. I don't know mm. what kind of guy this was, but this should be a person. Not only should he be a person that you're investing in as yeah. a great filmmaker. I mean, this is his first film. Imagine yeah. he's just figuring it out. Yeah. I can imagine what he could do after. But then you, then the next stand and deliver that comes to the studio, you should, the studio should go, shit, we really missed the boat on that stand and right. deliver thing. We should be doing some more of these. Right. But they don't. That's right. the that's the racism that really, really sucks. Yep. Is it's the I under, I can understand that there's never been a movie like this. Hollywood's very conservative. Yeah. And, and they go, I don't know if there's an audience for this. But when you show that there's an audience for it, when yeah. you show that it's a great film, you should go, man, we want to be in the Hispanic film business. That's mm. what we should want to do. You would you think. Know? Yeah, and you know, and, and this is a good time to bring up this study. This is this has consistently been true for a number of decades in this country. And this is the most recent survey held, I think in 2019 about the movie going public and how it's broken down. 27% of Hispanics watch a movie in a cinema once per month or more compared to just 12% of white U S adults, overall Hispanics and uh, uh, African-Americans or black people are, have visited a movie theater in the last few months more than white people have. Like that, put that in your mind and go, why haven't these studios invested more in the past to create content that appeals specifically to Latino? I mean, In the Heights, everyone was like, in the Heights, in the Heights, and it didn't do on the box office. I was like, oh, see, it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. One fucking movie? This is the kind of stupidity. Meanwhile, we can have 30 Van Damme films or 30 Expendables films, and somehow that's validation. It's ridiculous, and it's so frustrating that we see this, and I'm hoping that more and more things like Hispanic Heritage Month, things like uh, Me Too, uh, sorry, things like Black Lives Matter, 
oh, uh, people of color coming forward. We're seeing so many people of color getting opportunities to make sh shows now, make movies, be the leads in franchises, be the leads. I mean, Transformers is going to have Anthony Ramos from um, uh, from uh, uh, In the Heights be one of the leads there with the new film coming out, Beast Wars. These are the opportunities that should have been there from the beginning. You know, it's not like all of a sudden Hispanics learned how to act or Latinos learned how to act or learned how to direct. The opportunities weren't there. And same thing with, with the, our, our uh, black counterparts and Asian counterparts. The opportunities weren't there. And it's now high time. And I'm sensing that there has been a change here to create more of this content because the public has finally said, yeah, enough is enough. Uh, it, I was I was debating whether or not I would bring this up, but but mm. now I'm, re I'm really glad you showed that study because one thing, as you know, because we talked many times, I really like math and I really like numbers. <laughs> and I was thinking about whether or not I should bring this up, but then I went, well, this whole movie's about math. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. And I went, and what what really bugs me is how many times people make statements and decisions mm -hmm. without actually having numbers to back them up. Like Hollywood doesn't look at the numbers you just said, right? You know, because it would be obvious you should make more movies like that. I cannot tell you how much time I have spent trying to find statistics to about arguments, particularly like dealing with uh, racism and the police mm -hmm. or dealing with um, health care or dealing with like, well, how many people does this happen yeah. to? You know, like w w frequently with any policy, you have one side saying we absolutely have to do this and the other saying we absolutely shouldn't do that. And yeah. neither of them, you know, in, in science, you would run an experiment. You have a you have a hypothesis. You run an experiment. You yeah. get some data and then you decide whether or not your thing was true. That's not what happens. It doesn't happen in Hollywood. It doesn't happen in government. Like it's like and. and Jaime Escalante is saying numbers are important mm -hmm. because, and this is the thing about, about thinking mathematically is that there is a irrefutable logic to mathematics yeah. that doesn't exist anywhere, anywhere else. And yeah. so like the, that you should people, people pick the movie they're going to produce based on their gut and their yeah. gut is based on their life experience. It's based on what they like. It's based on what they've seen rather than going like, Oh, this movie for this community that goes to films all the time mm -hmm. was really successful. It's not my life experience. I don't really get it, but man, we should take a look at that. Just yeah. look at the numbers, you know? Yep. And speaking of numbers, here's some more numbers for you to kind of stick in, in your head. For those of you who are watching to try to get some information about Hispanic and Latin cinema here in 1999. Uh, this is when things kind of came to a head. Cause we remember the seventies, Steve, it feels like the seventies were way more inclusive with their shows and with their characters and, and what have you in terms of people of color. You know, we saw so many shows, good sure. times, uh, the Jeffersons, uh, Chico and the man, um, even Barney Miller being an ensemble multicultural cast there. There was a lot uh, to see in TV in the seventies. And then the eighties, it seemed to be like the Cosby show, different world and uh the one with urkel uh, family matters those are the ones in amen 227 those are kind of stood out but there wasn't much beyond that and it seemed to be homogenizing through the 80s into the 90s and then 1999 none of the broadcast network's 26 new fall series featured a non-white lead none of them and because of that the national hispanic media coalition and the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, 
uh, and the National Hispanic Foundation um, uh, uh, launched a boycott and launched a and and tried to make it make people aware of it because at that point Latinos represented eleven percent of the population, but they'd made up fewer than two percent of the characters on television. So sometimes white people push back. Uh, sometimes some white people, sorry, I want to make that correct. Some white people push back. Some white executives push back and say, "Oh, well, you know, it, it's got to be reflective. It can't be 50-50. Fine, it doesn't have to be fifty-fifty." But it does have to be correlative at the very base, correlative to um, the actual numbers in our country. And this is a study from 2018, 2019. This was the 2020 UCLA Hollywood Diversity Report. Latinos are now 18% of the population at that at just a year or two ago, but made up only 5.3% of the broadcast TV roles in the 2018-2019 season. And in big screen, it's even more stark where there were only 4.6% of the movie roles in 2019. And that's madness for me to think about because even at the height of Latino representation, it never got above single digits uh, on TV. And that's just uh, uh, mind-blowing to me um, because Black people are advancing, it seems, faster although Latinos are going to the theater at the same numbers. So there needs to be a push, a stronger push to see this content uh, out there for more people to consume. You know? Well, first of all, I love that you gave me more numbers because I really <laughs> like numbers. And, and I think this is one of the ways that I would look at it is that is, is the studio executive correct in going, well, this can't happen all instantly. This isn't just, you know, yeah, that's probably true. But sure. if you look over time, that number should approach what the national population is. Yes. And if that number isn't approaching what the national population is, then you must actively make choices in order to get it mm -hmm. moving in that direction. You know, and, and like, by the way, one of the biggest one, you know, we're speaking, of course, about Latinos and this is Hispanic yeah. Heritage Month. And that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. Man, look at women. You right. women half the population and look at how sure. much they're represented in fortune 500 companies or the senate or all the women presidents we've had you know like 46 presidents zero women yeah. half the right. population like there, there's so many play and it's like does that mean instantly that 50 percent of all powerful roles should be held by women next week no that's not going to happen right. but if it's not moving in that direction we are failing yeah Absolutely. And I think it's important to call out, for example, call out production companies led by women that have almost all male directors. It has to be called out as well, just like it would be called out if we had a Hispanic studio and they were hiring all white male directors. It wouldn't be a good thing. And so these are the things that you have to start. Like we have to kind of push ourselves and uh, uh, people outside of our community to understand that it's very important to have the representation. And, you know, it's frustrating when I see the numbers, when I saw the numbers for In the Heights that weekend. And I was one of the only people that I saw on the Internet coming out and talking about the inherent racism of the numbers that were coming through. Because to me, that's what that signals. It doesn't signal that this was a damn good movie. And yes, it was a musical. And yes, it was when it was released. But it was it was a vibrant, fun musical. And people came up and, and they were majority white. Most of the box office analysts came up with all kinds of reasons for why it failed that had nothing to do with race. And I think that's another form of not conscious, but maybe unconscious white privilege. I'm looking at this film and putting it in the same context as I would The Expendables or as I would... 
a a a, a Marvel movie led by all white people, like the event, first Avengers movie. Like it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And so you have to kind of, um, as we said with the studies of, of you know, people of color coming through uh, bad situations, you have to factor in all the elements here. And I do believe a certain element of racism was involved in people not coming out. And another part of this is our people didn't come out. And that also has to be called out by prominent uh, Hispanic and Latino journalists, movie critics, and people who analyze box office who are in the Latin communities and Latin countries as well to highlight the fact that people didn't come out and it wasn't about skin color that wasn't the reason latinos didn't come out give me a fucking break it was more a matter of that people sometimes in this latin community of ours don't want to support our fellow people who succeed at certain things and that's a cycle that also needs to be broken inside our own community or wheel rather than needs to be broken inside of our own community so that we can support all of our people who get into positions to put out content and hell you didn't have to sit in the theater just buy a ticket don't even go at least you've bought to support even if you don't want to see the movie buy the ticket and just at least you've given some money towards that you know so it's just we'll we'll see how Encanto does which is coming out real soon as well well and literally it's what we were talking about in this movie is that yeah. the community not supporting these kids yes. and not believing right. that they could succeed i mean it's literally exactly what you're saying about in the heights yeah. is and and this is you know what i hadn't thought about it quite this way this is one of the things the jews i'm jewish this is one of the things that jews are really good at yes is that i the know jewish community supports the jewish community yes you know i mean part of it is that you know like the Jews didn't have to over Jews had to overcome a whole bunch of stuff. Yes. But they didn't have still, one of the things they didn't have to overcome was Jewish people have always believed in education and you know th- some of these mm-hmm. some of these values they didn't we didn't have to that was pu- built into what I was raised with and generationally what we were raised with but yeah. it was also like I mean there there is a Jewish grapevine that mm-hmm. like you know when I when I had horrible back problems I called up my mom and said, ask the Jews, who is the good back surgeon? And they found me the guy who was Jewish, you know, and that's the guy who did surgery on my back. Like, and, and, and you know, they're also, I mean, all these communities, it's not that Latinos don't look out for each other in their communities. I'm sure, yeah. of course they do. There's a but film that, like, that highlights that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, but that, that, you know, there's things that you're saying about it, it, it's so, the other thing I would say, just going back to mm. math, is that one experiment does not actually prove a theory. Yeah, you need right. you know, particularly experiments in social. That, that's why, like the the female led Ghostbusters movie didn't do that well. So they go, oh, female comedies don't work. It's right. like no, that's one experiment, right. and and with there are all sorts of movies. I mean, Hollywood for a hundred years has known there isn't actually predicting what's going to do well and what's and yeah. it's not necessarily correlative to quality citizen kane is arguably the greatest movie of all time didn't do that well at the box office like there's all sorts of movies that are really good that don't do well there's all sorts of movies that aren't good that do really really well i mean venom has made tons of money yeah yeah i mean you told me it's terrible i will never see it um but it's making lots of money and so then you go like but for a, a latino film you go oh that's it right you know right and that's that's and that what I think that's the shortcut in some of these executives uh, that are of, of of white origin here 
in 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 approaching situations like this. Oh, there's our example. Got it. We don't need to yep. do it anymore. And that is so. For, let's take a chance on another crappy uh, Bruce Willis film, or let's take another chance on another crappy film from a, a a white actor. Let's give him another chance. You know, it's 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 so frustrating when you see this situation. Um, I want to read. Uh, you see Anna Christian Ramon, who is uh, the she's the um, um division head of the division of social sciences at UCLA. She argued when they asked her about why this would happen. She was the director of research and civic engagement of the division of social sciences at UCLA. Uh, uh, why this is the situation with Hollywood and uh, how, why the representation is so low with Latinos as well as Asian Americans. She said, unfortunately, the effect of that is that they think that the community is a very niche community and that they prefer only Spanish language content. And so really the push for representation, English language, pro- English language programming hasn't been there because there's this misunderstanding of who the community is and what the audience wants to see. Um and further observe, and this is Charles Ramirez Berg, uh, who's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and author of Latino Images and Film Stereotypes, Subversion and Resistance, further observes that many non-white actors are cast for roles that overemphasize their race or ethnic- ethnicity. Instead, he says, just let them be people. And I think yep. that's a really powerful thing as well, to let people who are of Hispanic or Black or LGBTQ, let them be themselves in a movie therefore it's not a big deal and it's not highlighted as a big deal it's just what it is and uh, i want us to get to that position but in order to get to that position we need to have way more latino content out there so that we can just be normal regular people and people don't have to trumpet the fact that it's a latino film or latino tv show or all latin cast we need more of that uh, happening and people need to patronize them more so I well, and this is this is a conversation you and I had in one of our shorts. We had a mm. whole three short uh, sequence about dealing with some of these issues, <laughs> and, and one of them is like, uh, uh, "Is that you're a great actor? I I love watching you act for twenty years. And and are there great Latino parts or parts where the character is Bolivian that you could play? Totally. Does yeah. that represent the total breadth of your ability as an actor? No, <laughs> no. You right. can play all sorts of parts where you sure. you know like you." you because acting is not being yourself sometimes. Acting right. is being somebody else. And so <laughs> the idea that like, because yeah. I think the statement that from that quote was really interesting is that uh, minority actors cast in roles that overemphasize their race. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's like white people are just cast as people. Yeah. You know, right. And it, 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 as opposed to like being just a person. And so like, I think we need to do both things simultaneously. One yeah. is tell stories that really do reflect these communities yeah and on the other hand cast people to just play people you know yeah, yeah. um yeah it, it's i was i read um a few years ago there's malcolm gladwell's book um talking to strangers mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, i always have ongoing arguments with malcolm gladwell in my head because i he's absolutely brilliant and sometimes he's arrogant and and i you know he takes his yes. opinions too far in my opinion but uh but they're always thought-provoking books and the big thing about that book is going you you're having a conversation with a person that comes from a different place or an interaction Mm -hmm. and that you think you know what's going on but you don't understand what's going on from their perspective yeah is that what's going on from them and the main one he's talking about is the african-american interaction with the police Mm -hmm. is is that but that going like what does it feel like from this other side is that like for instance you know, one of the signs, like, I, I think maybe we brought this up in something we talked about recently. I don't remember, but like the job interview mm-hmm. and there's the white 
owner, you know, uh, the white boss who's hiring mm -hmm. people. And he goes, I'm not racist. I don't see color, you know, all that stuff. And, and, and let's just say that he isn't overtly racist in mm -hmm. any way. He's, you know, has 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 good um, intentions. Yeah. And there are two people that come in equally qualified based on the resume. One's a white guy. One's a black guy or a Latino guy. And uh, and the white guy comes in, shakes his hand, looks him in the eye. They kind of talk the same talk because they have the same background. Yeah. And then he leaves. And then the let's say the Latino guy comes in to an all white office. Mm -hmm. He really needs this job. He's like you, the first kid that in his family that went to college. This is like a really big deal. It's not his environment. He's nervous. His hand is sweaty when he yep. shakes hands. He kind of looks around at the room. He feels a little bit uncomfortable because it's very not like his background. Right. And the then the at the end of the interview, the boss hires a white guy. Yeah. And, and he doesn't think he's done anything racist. He hasn't done anything racist. Right. He didn't understand what was happening for that other guy, you know, because he couldn't see things from his perspective. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Sorry, Steve. No, no, I was done. Uh, I want to add to that. Another part of this, and I and I want this to be clear, and I want to say this as respectfully as possible, is and because I saw this um, a few months ago um, when these numbers were coming out last year, because this this came out in twenty twenty, all these numbers and stuff, um, and 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 I'll add on to that because I want to add on to this the 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 Writers Guild numbers, which are really stark. Um, the Writers Guild numbers here, and this is what sparked what I'm going to talk about here on social media uh since 2008 latinos have never constant this is from the la times by the way i'll make sure i'm quoting everything these are from the studies la times reporting the article on the studies latinos have never constituted more than five percent of employed wga film writers wow. when it comes to tv they've hovered below five percent before increasing in recent years in 2019 latino writers constituted a whopping 8.7 percent of employed television writers and in 2008 it was 2.5 percent so at least there is a six percent increase in the last uh, 11 years in that so it's trending upward but it's still That's not good. correlative no. to the 18 percent that we represent in this country in terms of population um uh, overall so when i say that is because i'm putting that up because you know I, when i worked at uh, collider it struck me how all the writers pretty much the full-time writers were white and yes, there were right. women. There was a woman who was an LGBTQ person. Absolutely. But all white. And there were no full-time writers. And I was in a full-time, I was full-time on camera and I would occasionally write, but there were no full-time people, minorities writing or doing stuff. There were occasional um, freelance writers of color and women of color who were writing stuff every once in a while. And I'd have it on pretty good authority that they were having struggles to find black writers for Black History Month because it snuck up on them and they weren't aware of it. And they didn't think they had to do it. There's this kind of like pseudo white privilege that goes on with liberals as well in these positions where they encourage studios and TV networks to go and get more diverse. But when you look at their situation, their website or their company or whatever, and you're starting to say, Hey, certain people need to be moved out so that people of color can come in or you need to create more opportunities for people of color. White people, white liberals all of a sudden start to lose their minds and go, well, don't take my job. Don't, you know, like Rachel Nichols did that conversation from a year ago, whatever you feel about it being released at, around the time that Maria Taylor wanted to get a better contract with the ASPN, it still doesn't take away the fact she said, I am not going to allow this woman of color to take stuff from me as a, as a, as a, as a white woman who fought to get, that's that kind of stuff. So 
we're confronting that as well, that the white people who claim to be allies sometimes are also themselves threatened by the fact that we might go and take the jobs from them that they use to crow about other places to become more diverse. There's a hypocrisy in that that also needs to be unwrapped as well. It isn't just one side of the spectrum, ladies and gentlemen. It's all around. And so I think that's important to consider as well, Steve. I I, I agree. I also do want to say it's re- it is hard when you can't find work, you know. Yes. And I and I, you know, and that is something that minorities and people of color have struggled with for a hundred years. And so do I think yeah. it's okay that the pendulum is now swung the other way? Uh yeah, I think the pendulum has to swing the other way. But I yeah. also know friends who who are losing their health insurance because they can't get work. You yeah. Know? And so it's so like and I understand why they're upset, you know. If yeah. if I were a writer trying to get, you know, a job on a show right now, I probably mm-hmm. would have a hard time, you know, right. um, and that would suck. And I would if probably you were, be yeah, upset. If a white writer. And you're not the first. I've, I've talked to a number yeah. of people in different facets of entertainment who are finding a, a very cold wake up call that people of color are now coming in and being looked at for certain roles, uh, writers for being writers, for being directors, for being actors. You're seeing it showrunners. You're seeing yep. it happening. But that's the game. And the, if the pendulum swings the other way and you're in the way and you're not in the most secure position, unfortunately, it that sucks. can be the result. And yes, it absolutely sucks. Um, well, and, and but I have, you also I have, participated in a system that effectively kept out people of color. And if you right. didn't use your time to highlight that or to try to bring in people of color or to try to write or make a connection to people of color and just blindly kept taking that money and never did anything about it. Yeah, I don't have that much sympathy for the fact that you might be out and not have your health insurance. I think it's shitty, but I don't have that much sympathy. So I, I, I have, pl- I personally have plenty of sympathy to go around for all sorts of people. There we go. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, and I also do know people who literally have gone to a meeting and said, and been told, I cannot hire you because a, a woman, in fact, a, yep. a fairly successful television director mm-hmm. was told, I cannot hire you because you're white. Yeah. Now that is literally illegal. You literally cannot tell someone that <laughs> that is that is against the law. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter that it's a white person versus a black person. And that feels really shitty, you know. Um, and I'll say another thing. I, I've mm-hmm. been hesitating about whether or not I should say this and maybe I shouldn't. And okay. I don't mean to be blindsiding you. But the reality is the cinephiles hasn't done the best job at this. Well, no, I know. And, and we've you worked. Know? Well, yeah, because a majority of the classic movies are not movies it's- of color. It's and, well, and, and and we've had one female director, as far as I can remember. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we have steps to go as well, certainly. Yeah. But uh, once again, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like we don't want to cover these movies. It's we've more, literally I, had the conversation many times yeah, about wanting to do it. But also, we have that ten-year window, and so the last ten years has seen a revolution of more women directing films, uh, more people of color being behind the camera. So. There, we'll have more opportunities for sure if we want to break our rules. But if not, there's certainly plenty in terms of people of color that we can look at through the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s who directed films for sure. So yeah, we have to do a better job. But I think also the other side of it, Steve, the reason we don't jump to it all the time is because we also feel like we should bring in a, care, a, a critic of color no, that's or what I was gonna say. a guest of color. Yeah, that's also something that for our, for our own sake, that we kind of ha- that holds us back a little bit is that we don't want to tackle a movie without being able to line up the right guest 
who is connected to that movie in terms yep. of either gender or ethnicity so that we can be respectful of that community in that point of view and have it on on the uh, on the show so it's which is well, not always it, easy it, to do yeah and, and for those of you who are watching right now this is literally a conversation john and i have had many many oh, yeah. many times many about times. We, we have to do better yep. and we have to have the right guess and then this is something and maybe this is just my weird insecurity about it i feel weird about yes. only bringing on right, a right, right. black guest or a, a female guest to talk about an african-american film or a female-led film mm -hmm. that feels like tokenizing in some weird way to me but mm -hmm. that and that which shouldn't like because just like we were talking before, like you yep. should be able to act in all sorts of parts. If they're a great guest, well, they shouldn't just be able to talk about an African-American yeah. movie. That doesn't make sense. Well, I think you know? we're if we go the route of bringing them in for this movie and they accept the invitation, very gracious, and our blessing to for them to, or our honor for them to accept the invitation, then we say, do you have another film that you'd like to cover? We'd like to bring you on down yeah. the road and say, maybe, uh, you know, behind, just to our, like, hey, it doesn't have to be a, a, a film of color. If you'd like to come back and do another film of color, feel free. If there's another film that you really love that isn't necessarily directed right. or starring person of color or a woman or whatever, we would be open to that as well. So maybe just that we're not yeah. tokenizing to only tokenize. It's right. more a matter of opening the door and then seeing what right. they would like to do down the road. Because yeah. a great guest is a great guest. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, when we had, there are people we've had on, it's like, oh, you could come back. <laughs> yes, very much so. I mean, Winston and Jay, took us through the ringer on Black Panther in four oh, yeah. parts, uh, but it was worth every second because it was incredible to get their points of views and perspectives that we would not have had in any way, shape, not. or form. And it was uh, such an eye-opening experience, Steve, on so many levels. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, have we talked much about the movie lately? <laughs> uh, no, but one more thing here to throw. You mentioned directors. Yeah. USC found that Latinos made up a whopping 1.8% of directors on 2019's 100 top grossing movies or two people in all. There was just two people that were in there across the span of 2007 to 2019 wow. covered in the report. Latinos accounted for only 3.6% of the directors. Um, and another, but the dearth of Latino film directors has consequences. Well, another recent study by USC found that when a Latino director was attached to a film, the percentage of Latino characters on screen increased from 4% to 13%. So wow. that's important too. So maybe I should go study to be a director, Steve. Maybe I, this I, is the time finally, once and for all. <laughs> will Outlaw Nation go away? Because I can't lose Outlaw Nation. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think we'll be able to do both. I think. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, I was just. I, I really want to go back to this idea of belief. Of, yes. Of because I think part of what's so important about this is the narrative that we tell ourselves about mm. who we are frequently comes from the media. You know, and oh, so, great point, Steve. Yes, and that gets reinforced. If all you're seeing is a certain narrative within the media, yeah. well, then it's it's a self fulfilling prophecy because well, I can't be a director, mm -hmm. you know, because I don't see that ref reflected. It's funny, literally, not anything to do with this conversation. Mm -hmm. The book I started listening to this morning is called "The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces." It's by Maria Totter or mm -hmm. Tatar. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Okay, and it's basically her response to the very male-oriented joseph campbell hero with a thousand faces <laughs> is that she's going through mythology wow. and talking about how women are represented traditionally in mythology and the book's already kind of blown my mind wow and, and one of the cool things about it is and and by the way my sister recommended it to me i don't know if, she, if she's watching right now but thank you kathy it's Hello, a really kathy. good book um but uh the the thing that 
there's a very, very specific narrative that Joseph Campbell talks about, about who women are in mythology. <laughs> and it, it, there was even a moment where like some student of his uh, woman said, well, uh, who am I in the mythology? And they said, oh, you're the, the maternal figure. You're the this, you're the that. And she said, but I want to be the hero. And he basically said, you can't. That's the guy. Jesus. And it's like, we've been fed. And what you think about literally for thousands of years, mm -hmm. fed images of the heroic male. Yeah. And that is so deep, deep ingrained into how we look at things and the violently heroic male yeah. and the, you know, like what that, you know, Luke Skywalker hero's journey is and the images, what are the images of women? They're, they're, they're different. And so again, it's this belief. It's the, you know, culture is the water that we swim in. And if you can't see images of who you are doing other things, it's really, really hard yeah. to escape that culture, you know? Yeah, agreed. Agreed, hundred percent. Yeah, and it's great that that these um, books, these movies, these TV shows, these documentaries are being put out there for people to explore. Uh, uh, one of, of our listeners from the stereo show that we do on Saturdays mm. with the Lady Outlaw and I, he hipped us to a documentary about the British um, being about being homosexual in Britain during the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Um, and we're going to watch this thing. Apparently it's a series and some, mm. I've read some of the reviews and apparently it is heartbreaking and devastating. Mm. And I never even thought of it. And I was stumbling on Hulu, just looking at black cinema stuff. And I found a documentary that was sh sh made last year, released on Hulu detailing the black experience in Britain. Something I didn't even consider to explore. Right. I'm so focused on the black experience in America. What was the black experience in Britain and some of the racism that they're still fighting with today, still battling today. Um, and we've seen the rise of like, you know, right wing neo-fascism over there in in England, in other European countries uh, and targeting uh, um, black people and targeting them even in sports arenas. We've seen campaigns to try to end racism since the early 90s uh, uh, across all of Europe in uh, the sport of football. So it's just it's mm. it's there. So you're right. So getting this opportunity that there's more avenues for people of color, for women, for LGBTQ community to get their perspectives out there, to get their stories out there. And people wanting to make the effort to learn about another perspective right. is important. You know, um, first of all, I'm very glad that Maria Torres, who I mentioned before has my back and pointed out what I didn't <laughs> mention, which is absolutely true is that there are many, many, many folk tales and fairy tales where women are the leads. Mm -hmm. And, and again, this is like Joseph Campbell, as much as he is revered by film people, yeah. he totally cherry picked his what stories he looked at and he mm -hmm. totally used what reinforced his particular ideas about yeah. what a hero's journey was um just like what a bit going to what you were saying um one of the really interesting ones is hearing about uh africans particularly north africans in mm -hmm. france because oh. one of the interesting particularly a because algeria was a colony and so there's a right. really to you know uh, tempestuous relationship yes. with people that came from there. But then the other weird thing about France is they have sort of the opposite philosophy of the U.S. The basic U.S. philosophy is 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 even though we don't do it well, everyone yeah. should be able to be diverse. There's no national religion and everyone should mm -hmm. be able to express them. That's what we kind of aspire to. Right. In France, it's you're supposed to be French. And yes. so French first. And that's literally codified in some of the laws. Yep. And so when they have these like anti-Burqa policies and a fair amount of fairly anti-Muslim policies, yeah. that's very much the French approach. And mm -hmm. so if you're a North African who's living in France and you want to hold on to your culture, well, what that is not 
it's a very different and complicated thing there, you know. It's a fantastic point. Uh, and I'll add to it this through the sports perspective. In 1998, when France won the World Cup, a, a, a significant amount of their players were players who were of players of color whose parents were from other countries, right. including Zinedine Zidane, who is of Algerian heritage. And there was a lot of uh, racism and uh, codified racism in articles written by French uh, uh, analysts about that team trying to destroy that team before the team even got a chance to go on their run in, at home in France because the, the World Cup was played in France that year before they had a chance to represent their country and be proud of their country. So there were questions about their dedication to France, their dedication to the flag if they were uh, immigrants or son of immigrants or what have you. And that was just kind of mind-blowing. I saw that in a documentary on Netflix about a year ago. I had no idea. I thought they were revered and i had no idea right. that they had endured all this kind of stuff as you said steve because of the ingrained approach that france has about their country and their citizens have you heard trevor noah talk about this no really uh, so, oh. so first of all trevor noah is amazing yeah like uh, the guy is one of the most brilliant thoughtful articulate incredible hilarious deep dudes i've yep. I, I mean he it, like such an incredible successor to john stewart who's yep. a, also a hero for me but yeah he apparently made a joke about that, that they had said the french soccer team was french and he he had made a joke it's like you know there's a lot of guys from africa in there i don't remember what the joke yeah. was and then uh france came after him and yep. said that he had been disrespectful and blah, blah blah and he totally held his ground and the stuff that he said like everything he does was so balanced and so thoughtful and and like it was it was really good if i yeah. i'll find it i'll try to send it send it to you oh please do i would love he's to hear great it. yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got some stream labs that have come through steve can we read them here sure let's do, you, do it. i don't have them up so yeah, yeah. you're gonna be the reader sterling jones donated thank you sterling he said do you believe that stand and deliver and a soldier story are those movies that need to be talked about more often, Steve? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I haven't. I'd be really soldier story. I think soldier story was great. I watched mm -hmm. it many, many times. It's just like Stand and Deliver. I haven't seen it in twenty years. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be curious to see how it holds up. Um, I. By the way, I should say I liked Stand and Deliver less than I thought that I would watching it oh, this time. That's a shame. I, I. I. Edward James Almost's performance is astounding yeah, yeah i think he's amazing in the movie mm -hmm. i think there's some other great performances it kind of drifts a little bit in the in the third act for me <laughs> like i didn't it didn't uh, the up to the test i think is great and then it's still really really good but it didn't quite have the wallop that i expected gotcha. but i think yes this soldier story 100 mm -hmm. particularly for a lot of the issues we talked about because it also deals with the community wanting to shut down within the community yes you know like that because there's the sergeant uh the actors whose name i adolf caesar yep adolf caesar man his character and what goes yeah. on with that it is a really that's a profound movie too yeah he had two damn good roles in the color purple and mm. in the soldier story but in the soldier story it is heartbreaking what yeah. he does to i think it's uh, mckelty williamson's character that is just devastating and there there's a who's who of actors oh, yeah. i think courtney b vance a young denzel washington yep a number i mean this is like essentially the outsiders for black actors this movie totally. there's so many great actors in the soldier story plus howard rollins who some of you may right. know now from in the heat of the night the tv show he was the gentleman investigating this situation going back to find out if this was a racist act or if this was an act that was done uh, by other members in the community on the military base powerful film but again 
what you said, like you said, community in within the community, uh, 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 uh and white bosses influencing a black mm -hmm. uh, character to be worse towards um, uh, the people, the black soldiers he was in charge of. Yeah. I, I have a weird uh, Latino question, and I, maybe sure. this is just sound very, but it just occurred to me. So Say that, it in Spanish. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I, one of my great, great failures is I totally <laughs> blew it in high school Spanish. Like I took th three years, three and a half yeah. years of high school Spanish. Yes. I have nothing. I did. I was such a terrible student in high school, and I did everything in my power to not <laughs> learn how to speak Spanish, basically, which really sucks. I love um, it. Yeah. Uh, but this is my so the tension that's in a soldier story is something that is so um, central to the African-American community. And I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but the tension between it's the tension between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, you mm -hmm. know, is the, mm -hmm. the tension between Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson or, or Joe sure. Lewis is the is the do you speak out and are you aggressively, you know, for mm -hmm. your community or are you trying to get along and succeed within the rules of the white community, right. you know? And, and what I was curious about is, is that a thing that is a tension within the Latino community? Yeah, of course. And especially when we see that we're becoming a more, how can I say this? We're becoming a political power that is factored into electoral maps um, mm. in a more, stronger way over the last 10 years i've never seen latino votes courted like they have been in right. the last two to three election cycles and the possibility that they can swing elections one way or the other and there are a, a astonishing large number of latino conservatives uh and mostly based because of the, the very deep religious beliefs within the latino community but for other reasons as well in terms of business and wealth and what have you um and so yes there is this idea that you know to get along you have to kind of adapt a little bit of the white mentality lord knows growing up in virginia where i grew because my parents took me out at nine years old from a predominant latino area um, full of immigrants and son of immigrants there where I was living in, in Falls Church, Virginia, in Coolmore, and moved me to Dale City, which at the time was as lily white as you get right. out into the uh, kind of outskirts of the bigger cities. It was about 25 minutes outside of D.C. And it was a culture shock, to say the least. Oh, and that's where I discovered what it was like to hate yourself for being a person of color, to hate yourself for being different, to hate yourself for a number of things. And I, my, some of my white friends would make some comments that were funny to their other white friends and you would have to just take it and you didn't yeah. have to, but the other option is that, you know, become a pariah or become beat up and right. all those things. Uh, you might surprise some of you. We weren't the most sensitive uh, when it comes to racism issues in the eighties, uh, no matter how many movies came out, there were still many people who would uh, be this way. So, so, having to adapt, you know, sometimes I've been accused of being a white Latino because of my skin color or because of my ability to speak with no accent or my liking of so many different things, so many different movies that aren't just Latino based or just Hispanic based. And that's something I've had to battle. And now this, the, the color argument is in essence, a connective tissue to what you just asked right. Steve. The, in the Heights argument was, you know, oh, you cast light-skinned actors, therefore you wanted white-adjacent actors to be your lead rather than these darker skin that supposedly represent Latins more. And, and that's the argument and battle within our community that's going on now even more uh, predominantly is that some 
darker skinned uh, Latinos uh, are vociferous in accusing white Latinos of being, in essence, white passing is what they call them, um, and uh, have to battle through that. Gloria Estefan does a podcast with two of her other family members, two of the other uh, females in her family. I think it's her sister and her daughter. And they talk about being white passing Latinos in this country and some of the some of the perils and consequences they've experienced both in the white community and from their own Latin community because they were white passing. So it's something that is constantly in our uh, community to discuss and also the white influence within our community, the, the desire to satisfy the white businessman or the white executive right. or the white owner, you know, um, and just well, I'm go, sure there's, I'm sure there's code switching. There's code switching mm. going on too, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do want to put the button on this. One of the reasons that I am moving out of the schmodown, it's not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons is I don't want to make money for a white man anymore. I want to fight for my channel to represent my channel and build my channel up. And I've appreciated every opportunity Christian Harloff has done for me. But in the end, I want to do it for myself. And I don't sure. want to put my services in this situation. Uh, and uh, he's been great at understanding that. We've had that conversation and he's been fantastic at understanding that. And so it's like, those are the things that I think are important for me as I'm growing in my embrace, more embracing the, in the path I'm walking that's something that I really want to be aware. Yes, is YouTube owned by white person? Google, sure, sure, sure. But I mean, like, right on the base level, the yeah. connectable level that I can see, I don't want to do that anymore. And so, Go it's Google a is a business. Google is a business that you have a partnership with. Yes, you're not. Yes. You're not working yeah. for them. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, yeah. it, YouTube and what well. you just articulated is essentially the American dream. That's what yes. you just articulated. Yeah, it's like there's a quote from Lincoln, and I never get—I don't know what exactly it is, but the basic idea of the quote is that this is how the system is supposed to work: is that a person works really, really hard, and eventually, if they are disciplined and succeed, they will have enough that they can hire someone else to work with them. Mm -hmm. And if they work really hard, uh, they can hire more people. And if that person who they got hired works really, really hard, they can save enough money that eventually they can start their own business. Yeah. And if they work really, really hard there at their own business, they can hire someone else. And then that's, and the process goes on and, yeah. and replicates itself. And he said, if that is possible, then the system is working. Again, I'm not really quoting mm. how Lincoln said this. He said it in his wonderful Lincoln way, not the way I'm saying <laughs> it. But, but he said, if that can happen, it's working. And if that can't happen, if yeah. someone gets a job working for somebody else and they work really, really hard and can never get ahead enough to go, then the system is broken, right. you know? And right. so you going, I'm, I've worked really hard for, for the Schmodown and for Christian yeah. and that was great. And now I'm working really hard building outlaw nation. Yeah. That's how it's supposed to work. You yeah. know? Exactly. And I hope to bring people of, you know, obviously you've right. seen Steve on my shows. I brought numerous people of color to be my co-hosts, Jay and Winston on the sports show, Wendy Lee, uh, and then Alex Sharshak as well earlier on mornings with the outlaw. When I had that show, I'm very, uh, very much about bringing along uh, people of color women of color to have uh, a voice on my channel and eventually, hopefully be able to hire people either as interns or what have you to work on my channel so they can help the channel build and then build out for themselves and learn how right. to do it themselves and then go off and build their own thing. So just like the, and Christian to all his credit, Christian does that. He is very much about helping people and, and giving them access to what he's built so they can learn to do it and branch off and do their own thing. He's never, in my opinion, I've never seen him resist that 
or be upset about it in any way, shape or form, you know, and I think that speaks volumes to him as a whatever my issues may be with him sometimes. I know as a person, that's not that's something that he aspires to do. And that's a good thing in the world. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. We got, I think two more here that came through for Streamlabs. Sterling Jones says, I love the end scene where Escalante walks down the school hallway oh, and the great. prince and the yeah. prince shows the number of students passing the exam increasing more and more shows the effect that one person can have. Yeah. I love, I love that scene too. That's one of those great physical bits of acting and just the choice that the way they have the text rotate through date and numbers is that's a great, that's one of the little choices that makes a movie good. You know, one thought I did have watching it, by the way. Yeah. Jaime Escalante would totally be fired today. (laughs) Yes. You can't talk to people like that. I mean, that's true. Well, and this is the thing is that he Mm -hmm. is insulting. He is, he says, sexual things sexist things he mm-hmm. you know his treatment of the lou diamond phillips character who i think is great in the movie yes. is yeah. aggressive he's you know like he does all sorts of things that you cannot do in a classroom today right and and, and this is one of the things it's like i i thought this for a long time of it's better to have a passionate teacher teach in a weird way that mm-hmm. isn't the standard than mm-hmm. to have the perfect program and have average teachers teaching that perfect program. You know what I mean? Fair. Like yeah. Jaime Escalante is who he is. I had teachers. I'm sure you had teachers like this. I had some teachers who were scary on, yeah. on some level. And those yeah. were some of my best experiences, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Well, and I would argue that he wasn't supposed to, but he would do what he was doing back then either. Right. But he just got away with it because of the end result here uh, from these students. The same thing with Joe Brown. I think that's his name, that the character that uh, Morgan Freeman plays, the oh, real yeah. life person in Lean right. on Me. This is, those were some pretty hardcore tactics that he took in that totally. film as well. But, you know, sometimes a hard hand is needed in order to move or separate the negative influences from the potentially positive results of people in our world. That's some that is, you know, can happen sometimes. Um one last one from Justin Toner says, hi, John and Steve. It's been a long time since I last watched Stand and Deliver. This conversation reminded me how good of a movie it is, and I will find the time to rewatch it again. I loved the Duck Soup episode. More Marx Brothers and classic comedy, please. There you go. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yes. It's always, we've we've done more old films lately. Yes. In the last God. year. We, we've gotten back to it a bit, you know, yeah. so. You know, I've been crazy about it, so I'm glad. You that we've done that um oh yeah and maria torres adding also agree one of the teachers who was hardest on me was also one of the best though she scared and incensed me then oh incensed is that i was angry yes but she taught me how to question and explore history that's awesome i thought she meant incense like burning incense so i was like <laughs> confused for a second. I, I, I i grew up in marin county i had teachers who burned incense <laughs> a lot of hippies where i grew up oh yeah um, <laughs> um, oh, we should announce that yes. uh, what our next episode is. Let's do it, please. So take it away. This this episode is our 249th episode of the Cinephiles, and that means that our next episode is our 250th episode of the Cinephiles. Now, for our 200th episode, I I made a documentary about the show. I am not doing that. <laughs> that was a lot of work. Yes. But what we would like to do is just have a have a Q&A and 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 which we've done in the past we haven't done it like that in a long time. And so uh you can send how should we have people send in their questions? You can send in questions through Facebook, you mm-hmm. can send in questions through uh Twitter, but we could also send questions to our email address which is the cinephiles 1941 the year of citizen kane mm-hmm. at gmail.com so that's the cinephiles 
1941 at gmail.com. And you can ask us anything. Yeah. And if it is offensive, we won't read it. But other than that, <laughs> we'd be happy to answer all your questions. And we're looking for, just like John and I are having a great time with this conversation, we, yeah. we'd love to have a have a conversation asking the things, answering the things that you uh, want to know about. Uh, and yes, you, uh, Douglas, you're asking if you can do uh, Patreon. Absolutely, messages through Patreon will get priority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. That's the way we're, we're focused on. So if you want to send in through Patreon, not... Not just the cinephiles1941 at gmail.com. If you want to send in through Patreon and say, this is for the 250th Q&A episode, then we'll set those aside and we'll pick our favorite ones from the Patreon side. Or we pick our favorite ones from the non-Patreon side and maybe some live questions, I think. Right, Steve? This is going to be a live show, right? Am I correct on that or am I incorrect? Uh, no, we had not okay. said it was going to be a live show, okay. but it can be a live we'll, show. Do you want we'll, it to be? We'll discuss that if we're going to be a live show. If it is a live show, we'll even take questions live within the uh, within the show uh, in term, from Streamlabs and Super Chats. But if not, this is the way we're going to go. We're going to pick Patreon and non-Patreon, the best ones of both. So please send them in and uh, let us have some fun with those questions. And please do not send in seven paragraphs. Send in some. It's okay to offer background, but like send in questions, maybe one or two. Don't send in seven or five questions. Send in one or two of your favorite ones that you really want us to answer uh, so that we can select it possibly to answer on the show. Yeah, I am curious, and this will not be binding in any way, but the people that are watching right now, yeah. type in the chat, uh, live or recorded, Ooh. and I'm curious which one you would prefer that we do. Okay, um, we'll do it over the next five minutes before we wrap up here. Yeah, so. before we wrap up. Five minutes. Also, Steve, Steve I, I don't want to blindside you now. Citizen Kane is coming in 4K next month. I think we should do a little bit of a mini review for it. Maybe 15, 20 minutes. Done. Okay. I, I, I absolutely. I, I'm okay. definitely going to buy it, and uh, I can't buy. wait to take a look at it in 4K. So sure. Well, and I mean, what did we do that three years ago? Yes, we've changed. We, you and I have changed. We've, yeah, you know, like we, maybe we'll have a different reaction to it this time. We've changed. We're more daring. Yeah. We're <laughs> blossoming in the woods. Yes, we have changed. And yes, it would be fun to revisit it and talk about it and see what you the just- new stuff is on it. Yes. Did you what? just jump into Stephen Sondheim right there? <laughs> I love Sondheim. What can I tell you? So, Sondheim, so I, I love Stephen Sondheim too. This is, by the way, all of you watching, these are the many facets of the outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> like, I bet people who discovered you on the Schmodown and the hat with the mask, if you, if like you said, like this guy also loves Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> people don't know how many times that I've put musicals on the wheel on my matches and I've never mm. spun them. And it's been so frustrating because I, I would love to just shock the world with my musicals knowledge in a Schmodown match just once. So maybe if I get my match at Schmodown Spectacular, if I get my match, I will put I will make sure either I put it on the wheel or I encourage uh, PJ, whoever's making the questions to put musicals on the wheel. because I would love to see that. Um, I wish there was sure. a way to talk about Stephen Sondheim on the cinephiles. Why I not? mean, we can't. I mean, it's our show. We can do whatever the hell we want. West Side Story? Uh, well, West Side yeah what what else i mean is it well, nine there, i mean sondheim company's coming yeah there's into the woods but for movies there's into the yeah. woods and there's sweeney todd yes both of those are kind of flawed films um, true um like there's just so he's such one of the great geniuses for me in terms of language and words and right yeah i don't know maybe, maybe we'll do a short or maybe we'll do something we'll do something and talk about it i don't know how we would approach it um but man he's he's one of the great great people I think a short would be fantastic, to be okay. honest with you. Remember, he did music for Dick Tracy, so we can That's even right, weave yeah. in Dick Tracy into a part of this as well. 
Have you, have you watched that movie? I don't think I've seen it since. Maybe uh, I watched it once since it came out. I, I don't know. My, I keep my thoughts to myself on that movie. <laughs> I I wish it had been a good movie. Uh, it's okay. It's not great. That's it's sure. not. It's not. It's not good. It's not. It's not uh, Warren Beatty's best. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. At the three minute mark, I Justin Toner says live. Maria Torres says live. Douglas says recorded, so I can listen to it in my car. Uh, well, we'll release. We'll always release it on the yeah, podcast feed. Absolutely. So, so you will be able to listen to it in your car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, somebody said what? Also, lo- I love Sondheim. Yeah, Company is being released as a 4K. Oh, really? As well by Criterion. Company uh, so, Company's brilliant. That's, that's I own. It was one of the first records I bought when I bought a record player again. Really? This company. Yeah. Oh, I love Company. Oh my god. Which version? Which is it the uh the original. The original with Burt oh. Jones and all them there. Yeah. Or Dean Jones, rather. Dean Jones. Dean Jones, but, yeah. But I also own the C D of the uh Raul Esparza version, which he's, I love. He's amazing, yeah. Yes. The yes. the it, my my favorite has always been the first act of Sunday in the Park with George is like one of the most brilliant things. Oh my god. The second act is good, but mm-hmm, the first mm-hmm. act is unbelievable. But man, company has really grown on me. The, yeah. I think that's a deep, deep, deep uh play. It is incredible. And apparently uh, in London, because I was watching the London version of the Tonys the other day, um, there is a switched, a gender swapped version of it where it's mm. a woman who is mm. Bobby. And I thought right. that was awesome. Sure. And so they did the whole like, you know, um, being alive uh, yeah. as, a, as a sample of the play for, uh, at that uh, British Tony Awards. And I was just baffed, I guess it was, but I was blown away by it, blown away. by. So now I've kind of want to hear the that version the soundtrack of that version and i'm sure it's on youtube somewhere so i should definitely listen to it but yeah but into the woods is also i mean damn into the woods no matter where you are in life that uh musical can have so many things to say to you um in so many interesting subtle and powerful ways it's not one i've gotten into and i i see i I, karen had seen it on broadway Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so i'd heard and she played it for me so i'd heard the music and then there was a production of it like at the amundsen a few years ago that i went to see that was kind of yeah not great and so Mm -hmm. i I, it hasn't gotten its hooks in me by the way Mm -hmm. uh do you want to know the first place i uh, experienced the song being alive what's that judd hirsch sings it in an episode of taxi (laughs) what and it yeah Oh my God. I'm going to YouTube that for later after we're done with this show. He's, I can Damn. so remember. Taxi is such wow. a good show. And I could so is. remember, like, he had a near death experience and it, and then it changed everything he was doing. And he decided oh to God. just do all the things that he was afraid of before. And so he just gets up <laughs> at a bar and walks up and starts playing the piano and sings Being Alive. Fuck me. I, I think I remember that episode. <laughs> I think I remember yeah. that episode growing up. Um, there's also a Sondheim um, from. Was in with the uh, in the marriage story with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. Oh, really? I, cannot, I never saw that. I can't remember what song they sing, but it's karaoke. Mm. And I think, if I remember correctly, yeah, he's he's singing. I think he's singing "Being Alive." I think mm. he's singing "Being Alive." So, yeah, um, possibly. So, all right. Anyway, let's wrap this up here. We're at five forty-five uh, p.m. PT. Thank you all so much for joining us for this live episode this uh, celebration of hispanic heritage month as we talked about stand and deliver uh starring the great edward james almost was oscar nominated for this role this film won best feature at the independent spirit awards that year and directed by ramon menendez and written by him and tom musca um, a name you've probably seen before many times tom musca for sure uh steve any final words as we wrap up here uh over this uh, about this episode 
I just want to thank you for suggesting this because not only was it great to revisit the movie mm. and to watch Edward James almost just kill it, but it afforded us an opportunity to have what has been a really great conversation. So I, mm. I'm, I'm really, really glad you made the suggestion. Uh, it was fantastic. And I, I, can I just say, do you remember why you felt that you should be able to pick what live show we did this time? <laughs> uh, because it's my birthday coming up. Is that Birthday's correct? Birthday's coming it? up. Yeah, my birthday's and coming so, up. But so is yeah. yours. It was, isn't yeah, mine's it? coming up too. Yeah, yeah. My, oh, mine's both first. October mine's babies? Yeah. Mine's October 14th and yours is the 20 something or other. 23rd. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I don't yeah. know what I don't. I mean, I thought about us having a dinner, but I think that with everything happening in Los Angeles and the COVID and everything, I don't know if maybe this is yet another year where I won't be able to get together with my friends to celebrate my birthday. We shall see, uh, it, which is going to suck for me personally, but we'll see. Um, uh, but yeah, for those of you, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. Is but if you want to send us some presents, Steve, do we have an address <laughs> they can send us to? I don't know if they do have an address. I don't think we've ever published an address. <laughs> um, uh, but they certainly can subscribe to the show on yeah. on Apple Podcasts. They can do it right here on YouTube, on Spotify or Stitcher. They can follow the show at Cine underscore Files on Twitter, the Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram, on Patreon. You can support the show and suggest short topics. And we're we're doing every once in a while when we do a really important movie, we ask for questions that we make part of the episode. And we were just doing that just a couple of days ago. Yes. So that's another thing to do on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And you could visit our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy all the movies we ever talked about. Yeah, which is great stuff. You should absolutely do that. Um, um for that. Uh, and I want to say so if you want to send something to steve and i i do have a a mailbox that, oh. that we just put up a couple of weeks ago it's 14781 pomerado road p-o-m-e-r-a-d-o road number 400 poway california 92064 if you send anything address it to me but make sure you put inside in a message or a letter there that this is for Steve Morris or this is for both of us or this is for me. Make sure you put that in there if you're sending us anything in terms of saying thank you for all the content we've given to you over the last few years for our birthdays. So uh, remember, yeah. Steve, October 14th, me, October 23rd. So there you go. Yeah. 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 And DM me if you need the address again. So there you go. Um, all right, Steve, where can they find you and all we do? Did we already say that? Did you already say I, that, sir? I didn't say me. I'm at SR okay. Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. There oh, and uh, Star Trek show, Enterprise Incidents. Uh, we have ju- we're just finishing the first season today. Arguably, the greatest Star Trek episode of all time went out. The city on the edge of forever. We just Ooh. put out our episode on that. Is a three almost three hour long conversation wow. on a forty seven minute show. Um, yeah. So if you want deep dives on Star Trek Enterprise incidents, there you go, there you go, and you can follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram, um, and uh, head on over to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash John Roca says to see all the stuff we're doing there and my other podcasts, the top 10 and the geek buddies is out there for you to consume as well. All right. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Please remember there's still uh, what over a week and a half left of Hispanic heritage month. So do something positive for the Hispanic people in your life, or maybe get yourself more educated on what's going on in the Hispanic heritage month and Hispanics in general in your community or in your life. And uh, uh, that's, that could be a way for you to contribute spiritually or on the universal wavelength to the positivity and the uplifting of Hispanics and, and Latinos in this country. So just much love to you. Gracias. Gracias para todos los que en español los, los que han, han escuchado a nosotros gracias uh, por estar aquí con nosotros también okay all right thank you all so much be well and uh, we'll talk to you next time with another live episode here of the cinephiles live be well until then
Peace.